Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Hello, my name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. And this episode is with Rick Carter. Rick is a production designer and art director. He's known for his work in Force Gump, Amistad, AI, Castaway, War of the Worlds, What Lies Beneath, Jurassic Park, Avatar, Back to the Future, Part 2 and 3. That was intense. Many of the films that he has worked on are directed by Steven Spielberg or Robert Zemeckis. For his art direction on Avatar, he won an Academy Award. And in 2013, Rick won his second Academy Award for production design on Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. He also is my uncle. During our conversation, we talked about everything from what a brainstorming session with Steven Spielberg actually sounds like to John Lennon's profound impact on his life. And you know when you have a conversation with someone and then the days go by and something that they said or a quality about them really sticks with you? That kind of happened with me um, after my conversation with Rick. And the quality that really stuck with me was Rick's ability to share his credit. Because from the outside, um, and really on all levels, Rick is a successful person. Uh, you know, he's won two Academy Awards. But whenever I would ask him about something that he did, it was he would always answer in a way that would share the credit. Um, and it's that's, that's something that we all need to work on. Something I need to work on. You know, I when I make a movie, I'm like, well, I want my name front and center. But uh, it was a good, good little reminder, you know, that uh, you can get to the top of your game and um, more times than not, sharing the credit will help you get there. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my Uncle Rick. Wait, 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 one more thing. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and share it with a friend. It helps. And if you have any feedback or recommendations for other guests you want to see me talk to, go to kyle.surf and leave a comment in the blog section. Without further ado, here's Rick. Here we are. If you meet someone and they ask what you do, how do you answer that question? Uh, I like to uh, answer that I'm an artist. Um, but I know that uh, when people are asking that, they're asking about the movies that I work on. So it's... Uh, the answer is that I'm a production designer, and I know that nobody knows what a production designer is. Um, it's it's the part of the movie um, that is always there, but you're not actually looking at it most of the time because you're concentrating on the characters and the story, and that's the most important thing. But if you imagine that you have a close-up of people talking, and so that all you would need would be the actors, and the camera, and the director, and the story. But if you're going to see anything more in the frame, anything more is going to be happening, then that's going to have to be created by somebody. It may be just be that you go out to a location and shoot, but you're 
but you also might go to some place that's fantastic. So if you're going to watch a movie and it takes place in outer space, or if it takes place in a time period that's not the one that you're in, somehow that world had to been created. And that's my job is to create that world that the movie takes place in. That's called production design. So how does that actually play out? How does your job on a day-to-day basis play out? Well, it starts with my being hired, usually in my case, by the director. And there may or may not be a full script already written. Some it's just an idea that's being developed. Or maybe it's a book that's in galleys. Maybe it was a first draft of a screenplay. And then I'm brought in to develop the visual side of the story. So imagine that there's, uh, in a story or a script, uh, typed words on a white piece of paper. But all those character developments and all that plot wants to feel like it started in a world that it just happened to take place in that world. It's just that it's a reverse order because you're actually filling in the white page with all the world that's actually there to allow that plot to take place in the perfect place where the characters can come together and then they can actually travel somewhere else. So a lot of the times, for me, the movie is about going somewhere. And that's been the great part for my career is that I don't just always go to a a house or a city that I've been into or in the United States. I get to travel to either the past or the future or just a fantasy. And so those places that we get to go to are not just of the here and now. Does that make Um, sense? It does. Give me an example of a movie that you worked on that allowed you to travel to one of those fantastic places. Well, I could start with and just do a riff. If you imagine that I was... uh, a young sea captain or a, or a flight uh, uh, operator and then somebody said to me as they did back in uh, the mid 80s which I was in my mid 30s well let's start off we're gonna go on a voyage we're gonna go somewhere and we don't know what it's gonna look like yet but when you're along you're gonna help us determine what it's gonna look like as we project forward in this movie so let's just say the first one and these are all real was to go back to the future. But it was the second back to the future. So that meant I was in 1985 and I got to travel forward to 2012, 2015. Then I came back to 1985, but everything had changed, which projected me back to 1955. And then I finally, back to the future three, had to go to 1885 in order to fix everything that had gone wrong by going to 2015. That's just the first two movies. Then if you say, well, What's another one? I said, well, imagine going to an island where dinosaurs have been created. And then you get there and you find out that everything that was a structure for that to be a nice, safe place has fallen apart. But that island of Jurassic Park does not exist in reality, nor does Hill Valley, actually, uh, Back to the Future. Or then the next one would be, where's another journey? We'll go to the south and found this idiot boy who is, he's, his story is being told by an older version of himself who's sitting on a park bench, who's Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. That idiot boy, supposedly, meaning he's not supposed to be very smart, tells a story that's a saga through a whole era of time where that boy not only is at home, but then travels all around the country, all the way to Vietnam, all the way to China. Everywhere he goes, he has an encounter that determines who he is, what the story he's telling. So just, it keeps going from there and there all the way through. Uh, artificial intelligence, AI, Munich, um, War of the Worlds, uh, Avatar, uh, 
uh, War Horse, um, Star Wars, uh, Force Awakens. So every one of those movies you can see, you go somewhere. You don't actually just stay in one place. Even Lincoln, the movie that I worked on, you are always going between two places in the movie. One is the White House and his world of Lincoln, and also there's the, um, the world of the Congress. So I'm always responsible for creating those places that people go to. That can be a physical place, or it can be created all digitally. And that's what the world of production design has developed into over the last 25 years. A lot of these places that you are creating are fantasy worlds, but they're informed by real experiences in your life. How did your young travels, um, when you were growing up, inform the movies that you created? Well, first I would say actually they're all fantasies because you're not really ever in a movie in the, the actual place that you say you are, even if it's a documentary, the fact that the camera's there often changes the dynamics. So starting with that as a, as a, as a basis, even if I'm doing a historical uh, piece that's accurate to what people say they remember and what the history says, it's a recreation that borders on fantasy, mainly because of the priorities of what you show. Then of course it can get very fanciful if you go especially into the, the deep future where you're projecting, but you're almost always projecting from where you are now. Back to the Future is the perfect example of projecting 30 years to 2015, which is now the past, but from the point of view of the 80s. So when you ask what was personal to me, there's the general personal of what is the time I'm living in, along with everybody else and what we're feeling, so that we project those values. Sometimes we don't even know what they are. We just think that's what's the right thing to do, but we're really reflecting our time. On a personal level, I traveled quite a bit as a young man. I, I um, from age uh, 17, went off traveling to Europe. That was part of what became the, the, the you know the countercultural era of the late 60s. And there was a whole hippie trail that emerged in the in the late uh, 60s that went all the way to India. And I I did that. I went to Europe, and for a whole year I went to Europe, then East Africa, to India, to Nepal, Kathmandu, then, then kept going all the way to uh, Calcutta, Rangoon, around all the way around the world for 10 months. And then even when I got back to school, I only stayed there for about six months before coming back out on the road, because that was the methodology for me to not only just explore the world, I didn't know if I was coming back. I didn't know who I was, what I wanted to do. So I always was looking out into the world with the people, which has always informed the basis of my artwork, the, the faces, but the places I went also had a big impact. So I kind of had a feeling after all that time that there are what I would call almost like a spirit of place that you actually get to um, tap into sometimes, particularly if you have a need. If you're just a tourist, you just look at what they tell you they have to offer and you, you would marvel at it, take a picture or whatever. But if you have a different kind of need when you're traveling, especially for an extended period of time, you start to identify with places certain feelings, both good and bad. So I've brought that into the basis of my production design because I'm not an architect and I'm not an illustrator and I'm not an interior designer. Those are the three fundamental things of production design along with digital artists now. And I'm not any of those. So the only reason I got into this was that art direction had the word art in it. My father knew uh, a good art director who actually was a production designer, Richard Silbert, who did Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby and uh, 
who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, and he introduced me to the idea that the production design was not so much a series of things that you had to learn as a concept that was almost basically a, a living, breathing conceptual art. And then he would say things like, kid, if, if this is music, I can, I can uh, write the score, I can play all the instruments, I can conduct the orchestra, and I can sell it out on the street. And I was just thinking with my long hair, you know, coming out of 1970, which is when I traveled around the world, just thought, I'm never going to be able to do that, ever. There's no way that I can learn that much of a technical skill to be like that. But I grasped that I could probably be an air guitarist. I could fake it so that it went deep, and then I could inspire other people. Your father, um, my grandfather, who I never got to meet because he mm -hmm. died uh, before I was born, um, was also in the film business. Right. We are, I don't know how many generations, Hollywood filmmaking, how many generations is this? It was at least three there. At least three. Yeah. What was the best piece of advice your father ever gave you? Well, first of all, his example, uh, he was somebody who was very personable and very... Um, uh, enthusiastic about life and then he and my mother created a, a dynamic so that that not only for this myself growing up but the the immediate family but I think by extension the people that he knew in Hollywood he was uh, uh, Jack Lemon's partner in his production company and he was his public relations man so he he really came at it from the point of view of, of what is it to communicate fundamentally both to the audiences but also internally so he would invite lots of people over that felt very comfortable at, at the house with great dinner party conversations mm -hmm. and then so a lot of people came and let down their guards and their competitive natures and just kind of got into the moment of where they were and I think that allowed him my mother to create kind of a salon atmosphere that I growing up and my sister I think heard the, the conversations that almost culturally seep in before you even know things. Like I can remember hearing, um, I think it was a he was an Academy Award-winning screenplay writer named Elvin Sargent uh, saying, "I can't believe they they just pissed on my script," and I was like about four years old, and I thought somebody really pissed on his script. <laughs> I mean, literally, and maybe they did, but the point I'm making is... It it's was, happened in Hollywood before. <laughs> and that brings a big uh, perspective to when you walk into it the next time. And you. It, so for me, I had already heard a lot of these stories. I've seen a lot, even instinctively, where am I? And I did not decide I wanted to be a part of Hollywood early at all. I thought Hollywood's too shallow and I want to have a more authentic life and so I went out on the road and I found out a lot of aspects to living that I think have helped me to see how much beyond my own small world and at that time was very consumed with the war in Vietnam and my own uh, status as a conscientious objector and all of the countercultural uh, aspects that were developing but for me to see a big, bigger world and to be regarded differently I think that helped bring me out of myself, and then that has always been the place that I return to that perspective when I design movies. And 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 so f so for me, just to go on a riff, to be invited to do Forrest Gump, for instance, that's my life and times. That's 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 as close as it gets to actually. I know that age. I know that era. I know when there was and wasn't a demonstration. I know where we're being fictitious where we're not but nonetheless I could bring myself to that point of view 
and I could also see the humor in it in ways once I was making that movie that I could never see earlier. I could even embrace the American flag in the movie, like behind him when he's playing ping pong, just because I wanted to be able to come back to, in my own feelings, a way of embracing where I came from as opposed to feeling ostracized. So the movies actually have been a way for me to bring myself back into something that I felt uh, very, very alienated from as I was growing up as a teenager. But I've gotten broader perspectives now, too, as to what part of those are the society and what part of those are my own. What's an example of um, uh, yeah, Forrest Gump, for, for instance, um, when you grew up in that era... Um, you felt very ostracized by the political climate at the time. You then had a chance to work on this movie. Um, what's an example of an experience you had in real life that then you brought into that film? Well, specifically, I think just starting with the, if you just take the seg segment in that movie, Forrest Gump, where there's a, a big demonstration in Washington, D.C., in front of the Washington Monument. I mean, first of all, I knew that the era that year that we were saying that this was, even though you don't clock that when you're watching the movie, that was in between two demonstrations. So the, there was one that was much more sort of optimistic and peaceful, and then there was one at the other end in 69 that was much more violent as things started to get more violent. The one we were portraying was as though it was 1968, and it relates to the Watergate thing and all that. So I was trying to track specifically with the Black Panthers and all of the things that were actually out of order, but to put them in a coherent emotional order so that you would believe that and then do things that are kind of very symbolic. But of course, if you think about them, they're not real at all. Like there's no way that the Black Panthers would have been given an apartment that if you pulled up the shade, you could be looking right at the Capitol. But we actually just put a window out on the mall looking at the at the Capitol, and then the rest of the apartment is, is a location somewhere else. So we, we were doing things to heighten the reality or, or to have Abby Hoffman there. Yes, he was in a um, American uh, uh, flag shirt at times, but not giving that speech that way. And then even the idea of how do you get around what would Forrest Gump say about the war? Because of his perspective, remember, is not, he's not a politico, he's just a person. Now, as it turns out, he really did have something to say. And it was about his mother and, and people that he lost to her friends. But they pulled the plug. So that way, you just have to put that in your head as to what you think he's saying. I think that was a really smart move because it, right when the thing, the two sides were coming together and you have to make a judgment as to, well, what side of this judgment am I going to come down on? Is, is the war a good thing, a bad thing? Uh, how do I feel about this? You were left to your own emotions to sort of sort through it and then see where your own emotions were. Now that has a point of view to it, but all I'm trying to get is that's when I started to realize that this gap that emerges that gets mined between two things that don't always have to agree or can simultaneously exist, but that like our own brains, we have two sides of a brain, there is a way to actually traverse that. But it's not it's not a solid zone. Yeah. It's a verb. It's not a no a noun. You have to continue with that and that's where art is so great because that's something you can mine over and over and over again that that unknown that then progresses you to the next one um one issue that i have 
in my life with a lot of my travels is I will go to a place, I will get a vivid, visceral feeling of the place, like Indonesia, right? There's a smell in Indonesia right, right. That, that you remember. Yeah. But it sometimes is hard to articulate, and as time goes by, that memory fades. Yeah. How do you remember something from a trip that you took when you were maybe 25 years old and then need to apply that to a film that you're making when you're uh, in your 60s. I what was your process? Was it art? Was it painting, writing? How did you actually do that? That's a good question. I think it's all of the above because you, you hit upon a really good way of looking at it as to why it's difficult to put into words or to understand your own process. But let's just take what you said, which is the sense of smell. Mm -hmm. Because I certainly, in Southeast Asia in particular, what I would say is that there's a kind of like, it's like an aroma of orchids and then just this putrid urine shit smell that wafts back and forth as this kind of yin-yang that is really powerful. And you know you're there. And in fact, I would say, one of the things that I can relate to on that level is, is when I traveled that first time that I mentioned in 1970, I was 20 years old for a whole year almost. And then I came back, but I, I actually dropped out again about six months later for only four months to complete the trip. And what I did was where I, the, as far as I'd gotten on the first trip was to Singapore. So when I went back, I actually went back to Singapore and then on to, down to Bali and then did more of Southeast Asia heading uh, east to get home. I remember getting off the airplane, coming out of the airport, and that's exactly what happened. The smell hit me, and it was as though I'd never been home. And that home was now the fantasy. That that, that was so powerful to be out on the road with that feeling and, and all that goes with it, that I was now looking at <clears throat> being at home as something that was just a fantasy dream that I'd had, but I was still traveling from before and a continuum. Now that sounds like, well, what does that have to do with anything? But it has to do with the dislocation of one type of experience to the next to the next. And in fact, in cinematic terms, Stanley Kubrick called that the mode jerk. You go from one scene that you're in and you jerk to another and the, the audience actually fills in. The classic example is when he has a scene in 2001 where the, the ape throws the jawbone up in the air and it goes up and it goes up and it just starts to come down and it turns into a spaceship. That's a big gap. And your brain has to kind of go with that to make sense of it but you don't really ever make sense of it you just experience it and it's like a hit it's like a high that that he's created cinematically for you to experience so when you're making a, a place in a, in, and you're thinking about what things are when you can invoke to those sensorial levels whether it is smell or just some sense of texture color a lot of what I did in the very beginning I was pretty literal like I had very powerful experiences in Tibetan temples in um, in Nepal, so the first movie that I ever production designed was a 14 minute short, and it, it had a it was called Magic Journeys, and there was this whole fantasy, and I painted everything red and gold, I mean everything, and it's amazing how colorful the movie is, and that people think it's very colorful, but it's really only two colors, but that's because I was really trying to invoke that that special place that the movie was taking me to was still directly linked to a real life experience. From there, it gets much more subtle as to something that's invoking, most of the time, uh, quasi, um, I don't want to call them religious, but spiritual experiences that are, they're, they're minor, but
but they add up over time. So that Back to the Future 2, the square of that, for me, the model of what that was, since it was an ideal place, but it was also supposed to be livable, was Kathmandu in 1970. So when I was smoking hashish in Kathmandu and transporting myself, and it was legal there, into the Himalayas, but also home to find myself, plus all the hippie culture that's mixed with the Buddhist and the, and the uh, Hindu culture. That's a big eclectic mishmash. So basically when I approached Kathmandu that way and had that in my brain, you know, just absorbing and I saw, okay, now I'm gonna do the future. What's the future? I have no idea what the future is. I went to that place and I made the, the, the courthouse, that's a temple. The Holomax where the Jaws figure comes out, that's a temple. The Cafe 80s, that's a temple. The gas station, that's a temple. So it's a, it's a square surrounded by these temples that for me were Kathmandu. How did you remember <laughs> them so vividly though? But they're not- I'm, Like how do, you, how do you bring that out? I, the, I, here, here's a better question. When you're in a riff session with Spielberg talking about how should this square look and you need to be creative and helpful in a very effective way, how do you go to that place and bring out um, those offerings from your past in such a coherent way? What, well, is, what it, does well, that actually look like? Well, it's a developmental process for 40 years now. So I didn't <laughs> just start right off knowing how to do it. I, it started off first and fundamentally understanding how much I don't know about how to do the job and recognizing that that's a big deficit unless I turn it into something else. And I had a revelation that I could see early on when I was doing Amazing Stories how much Spielberg had delegated and the other directors on that uh, show had delegated to me to do and I was overwhelmed and I was not that good at, at delegating and showing inspirationally what I wanted but even if I didn't know fully what it was and I made my very first mistake as a production designer, for, very first decision was a mistake. How high to make a platform for a train to come into a house so that they could step off it in the, in the right height. And I, I misjudged it, I just didn't think it through. I didn't ask anybody. And $3,000 later, we had a platform at the wrong height. That was my first decision. It was like, oh, this is, this is a disaster. You know, I'm going to be a disaster. Um, I mean, I'd had some good experiences on Goonies as an art director, but now I'm on my own and I'm fucking up majorly. <laughs> Okay, so I, I was riding back to my office and I was sort of, part of me was going, yeah, why didn't nobody else tell me about this? You know, I'm going, you can't do that. You know, just take this on. And I realized that I was overwhelmed. I had so many decisions. So then I realized, well, why am I overwhelmed? I'm overwhelmed because all these directors, but particularly Stephen, has delegated so much for me to do and to figure out. He says, I want a train to come through the house. I want to see up to about here and here and here and I'll see you in two weeks. And so that's, that's what I got. So then I realized, well, what if I shift the paradigm? If I want to be more like where he is in terms of his process, in terms of the, the, the organicness and how creative he gets to get, obviously he's delegating a lot to me. Who can I delegate to? That means you, it's not, you, don't, you do it out of a need. And that's the secret of, of delegating. It's you're not doing it because you're being benevolent. You're actually inviting people in to collaborate with you in a very important level because you can't do it. But you can hold the overall center and you can orchestrate it. So now here I'm starting to do what Dick was talking about, Richard Silbert, I'm orchestrating. I may not know how to play the instruments yet, 
but I'm orchestrating the instruments that are being played. I'm starting to hear a tune. It's so all often go to my staff that I hire first to talk about what are some ideas to get those up to that level over time that I can then inject into a really coherent conversation with uh, Spielberg or Cameron or Zemeckis or whoever I'm working with. Now over time, once I've performed the function where they go, okay, he's gonna, he may talk funny, but there's stuff in there and, and I'm gonna go with it and it always turns out well, <clears throat> that has freed me up to find the thing even in the presence with, let's say, Stephen. And it starts off with him giving me the license by saying, uh, well, one time I said something that, that he really liked and he said, you know, some of my best ideas are not my own. And it was like, that one's in the movie and it's not my idea. Now it's my idea, meaning his, because he's putting it into his movie. It doesn't exclude me. It just means I'm part of that process to have an idea that he sees so strongly and wants it in the movie. So that, that gave me license to realize that my ideas can go into the movie <clears throat> in that way, not just be a, an illustration of an idea, that whatever I come up with can be the idea, whether it's a visual or a concept. Now Zemeckis, Bob Zemeckis, on Back to the Future in those early days, and especially through Forrest Gump, he would look at everything that was an obstacle and he would call it an insurmountable opportunity. And what he would mean was that we wouldn't be here having this elevated conversation about this if we didn't have a problem. So now we have to find a better solution. And usually those better solutions were opportunities. They were like portals. So then once I understood there was a portal to be mined, that kind of took me back to that place I'm talking about when you're traveling and you're looking into things that are a little beyond the literal. And I realized that if I came up with something, I was like a reconnoiterer. I'm going out with a flag. I say, well, what about an idea over here? What do you think about this? And he would look at me sometimes and say, and his eyes would bulge, and he'd go, well, what I thought you were going to say is, not yes, that's it, <clears throat> but you led me to here, and now I'm inspiring him to jump up and find the idea that was already in his head, but he hadn't realized it yet, but because I'd set the scene for him finding that idea, and those ideas would be absolutely coherent cinematic sequences with permeation throughout the movie that could go right into the movie. So now that meant to me, I don't even have to be right. I just have to set the stage for better ideas. And then I realized, well, over time, that's really what production design is. It's setting the stage for, and then dot, 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 don't be so quick to fill it in. It's not a setting, a visual, it's whatever betters the movie at that point. Set the stage for it. So then I could even help design the production, not just be a production designer of the visuals. What comes in what order, how that works out budgetarily. All these things became a part of a trip to me. The final stage that I'm in now, and I'm sure there'll be one beyond this, uh, but most recently it's with, 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 particularly with Steven, because we know each other so well, where we'll be talking, like even right now, I can, I can go, okay, now and just you know just start it's like almost like breathing like some other things going on and and just say you're about to have a really good idea because you can feel the idea before you even know what it is let's do a little <laughs> role play then because okay. i want to i think it would be really um fun for people to actually hear what one of those conversations okay. sounds like so let's say you are sitting here you're you i'm steven spielberg and we are working on um 
pick pick one of the movies. Uh, AI. AI. You, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Um, what does one of those creative riff sessions sound like? How? What would I say? I would say, okay, well, I want. Um, you know, the, there's a scene where the the little boy is at the bottom of the ocean, right? Um, and then where does that go from there? Okay. Well, let me just back up one step because it will okay. inform being in that specific moment. Okay. So the way I was asked to be a part of that movie was when Stephen asked me if if I could do this dream movie that he'd gotten from Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley was dead, but that this was a, a movie that he had wanted to do and he'd spoken with Stephen about and thought actually Stephen was a better person to do it, but now he was dead and passed on, he wanted to do this movie. And, and, and to sort of join his mental space with whatever that meant. This, and that movie in many ways is a movie that is a combination of, of, of heart and mind. You can really see it. I mean, Kubrick is a very intellectual filmmaker. Spielberg is very emotional and, and heartfelt. But the two of them have a, there's a language there. Again, a gap to be mined. So just the bigger picture of what that is as, a, as an entree into what that is. Then if you, if, if you know where you are, where that scene that you're talking about, where, where David has gone to the bottom of the ocean and he's, he's wishing to be a real boy. Now, almost universally, the critics said, well, that's the end of the movie and that's the end of the third act, stop. And in a Kubrickian way, one could imagine, yes, you could do that kind of esoteric ending that kind of left you hanging, I just wish, just hanging on the wish. Now, it wasn't Kubrick's idea to keep it going. I mean, it was Kubrick's idea to keep it going. It wasn't Spielberg's. He wanted to go into the fourth act to see what would happen when that little child encounters his own legacy in the future. Because he's I was going 2,000 years, there's no more humans. Humans are God to those, those robots, and he is a robot that existed with humans directly. So he's the only direct link. So they're trying to get as much as they can from him to learn about themselves through him. So essentially we're into a fourth act. Now that fourth act, what I would be saying is, obviously the iconography of that scene is to fall when, when he sees all the-, the What does iconography mean? Iconography meaning the, 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 in this case, the symbols that are being used to convey certain truths or right. metaphors. The icons. And the icons that you would you would see and you'd say, oh, I get that, I get that, I get that, even if it's subliminally. Okay. So, I mean, I can, it's very simple. A little boy finds out he's not the only one. He's got all these siblings and they're all equal. And so everything he thinks is special is not special. His own thoughts are not special. He walk, goes out to an edge and he goes, my brain is falling out. He just gives himself over to fall. You see on the other robot, literally him, that little boy is a teardrop falling down his cheek he falls where into his subconscious is there such thing as a subconscious for the robot intelligence the ai well that's what you're being shown because he goes in he goes deeper you go past all these statues these fish come swirl they direct him you know and finally he's gotten into an amphibicopter that can go down underneath and actually go and find the blue fairy where does he go he goes to the land of dreams as represented by sort of a Disney-esque uh, Coney Island. And there's the Blue Fairy. There is the mother figure that's taking him on the whole journey once his, Monica, his, his adopted mother, 
pushed him away, but he wants her love. The reason I'm saying all this is because that's the emotion that's coming all the way up to it. And not only that, his face melds with hers in a, in a, in a shot. So that's, okay, that's the end of the movie. There's nothing more to say. He loves his mother. It's unrequited love. He'll never get there, but isn't that the human condition? But that's not the end of the story. That's a three-act story. But what's a four-act story? A four-act story is the one where Steven Spielberg, in our time and space, is directing a movie simultaneously or in relationship to a guy who's passed on. He is in the fourth dimension. So now Steven is channeling Stanley to go beyond the three-act structure to find that love, to find what it all actually matters, what matters and what doesn't. They come to a robots and you see all the emotions and everything play on the outside. That was an idea that I had. There was an idea of an idea. I said, well, what if, in, if robots in the future, uh, AI, they wear their emotions on their outside? We wear them on the inside. There's a difference right there. So that's why you're being shown that. I'm not saying it's, it's told you, but that's how the visual idea becomes part of why they touch him and then it goes through them, it goes to someone else. They all get it. So it's all back to that thing of what? Communication. And that just goes back to my dad and my mom, right? Can you communicate? And by the end of that movie, we've, we've taken a, a trip that is a dream, right? So I'm fulfilling what I said yes to to begin with, but it is it right at that core where it launches into the unknown, absolutely unknown, and also a part that's been criticized over and over and over again as being the part which just goes on too long, just too much. Well, and I, I understand that, but that doesn't stop me from my job visualizing and helping the storyteller, Stephen at this point, who wrote the script, to go as far as he can and see if that can't be realized. Now, does that hold any, I don't know if anybody can understand any of that, particularly without looking at visuals because nobody will have even seen the movie. I think, if But you, it's a trip. I think a few car crashes just happened if anyone was <laughs> listening to this podcast in their cars. <laughs> Or they missed their exit. Right, because they're 2,000 years in the future. <laughs> in the future now. <laughs> Someone just drove their car but, to the bottom but, of the ocean. But by the way, now is the perfect time to go back to the future. Whoa. Okay, so let's go back to the future. This is this is a perfect segue into my next question. Um, I loved that. <laughs> so fun. You have had a ton of commercial success. You've won multiple Academy Awards and you are by all accounts a, an extremely successful production designer. Has that changed your conversations in the room with people, uh, these directors, as opposed to earlier in your life before you had these commercial successes? Um, how would a conversation shift um, has it relaxed you at all? Um, has it, I mean, you're, you're, um, not a very pompous <laughs> guy. I, I think your, your, um, ability to just be pure, bring pure creativity to a situation has always been there. It seems like, but how would a conversation, um, be different earlier in your life as opposed to now, if at all? Oh, it's definitely different, and I and, and I, <clears throat> the the core of it is the same to me. But as as revealed over time, that I'm always returning to that as the source of inspiration, that, that which is authentic to me. But there's no question that once you become supposedly credible in the outside world because of the, certain things like awards or, or commercial success, 
that people are more open to, well, I'm not sure I understood what he said, but he must mean something that to someone because otherwise these wouldn't be his credits unless he's an imposter. And he's doing a good job of, of doing something that would be hard for an imposter to, to do. So we're going to believe that it's him, but does that really line up? And, and I'm sure there's been a number of uh, encounters where I'm talking with someone and I am freer to be myself because I'm trying to find the core of what I think is actually interested. And that's why even this podcasting you were talking about wanting to do the longer form to find the more specific thing that you're looking for. I totally understand that. I'm just saying that I know that in the world now, the, the attention span is so quick that the, it, it, it takes, how do you orchestrate finding the longer form within which is naturally constructed as a shorter form? Meaning that, that I, I want to meet you, I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to move on to my next appointment. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's the way it is. Okay. Okay. So when you're in that context, for me, now if it's a first time uh, meeting somebody, I never know how it's going to go. But I am more relaxed in terms of trying to listen and understand, do I hear the metaphors that they're talking so that it sparks not just a visual idea, but an idea of how I can relate to it and I can bring that subject up. And that might be a cinematic reference or a life reference or a travel reference or, or life and times point of reference. Something to keep the conversation or inspire the conversation to go slightly beyond what might have been considered <laughs> the subject at hand. I don't want to lose sight of it, but anytime I'm first talking with a, a director, really what you're saying to each other is this is the way the dialogue is going to go. If somebody needs it to go very specific and you just they say this you do this they say then that is going to be revealed that that's not necessarily going to be the dynamic and I, and it's important for me that we start to have that feeling because then I'll know what type of latitude I have to be me in the process if that makes sense that but that two academy awards or or the various nominations and things that helps because then they 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 can't help but go at least there's some credibility to what he's done maybe not what he's going to do but They'll give it the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, and then that starts to see, is there something truly there? Sure. Would you say that uh, when working with a director like James Cameron, um, as opposed to someone like Steven Spielberg, the conversations um, and the brainstorming sessions are wildly different uh, in terms of structure? They, they are on the surface, because Steven will readily admit going in at least with me, they, he doesn't necessarily have all the answers at all. So he's, he's looking to explore the answers uh, in, in his process and even the questions. What are, what are the things that need to be asked in order to find the deeper meaning or the richer visual or whatever so that he's inspired to find that level. Jim comes into it, uh, and as a writer also, I think feeling that he knows more about all of what it needs to be and now the task at hand for him is how does he get it through the reality of, of the world to be into a form that's a movie and it's always so ambitious and so difficult technologically that he's got to be very very uh, strong with how he he pushes it through so he's constantly testing everybody around him the way he's tested at the edge of, of what their abilities are and in fact then be very sometimes more I think in the old days um, harsh with his judgments about what people are bringing to the table or not um, this is where having a deficit for me was a big positive 
because I can't draw as well as he can, he couldn't, or I can't, let me put it this way, I would still say I can draw pretty darn well if you look at all the artwork that I'm doing in my life that's my personal artwork. But I don't, when it comes to illustrating something specific, either a background or a character, have, let's say, the chops that he has. And he's been an art director uh, for Roger Corman. He's an excellent art director, an uh, excellent production designer. He's a really excellent director and an excellent writer. So when he comes at something, he's basically to many people, and he says this, you know, I can do all of your jobs much better than all of you can. My response, because I can't do any of it, is to ask the Zen Cohen that's, that's right there, which is, and why is there so much for the rest of us to do? And the answer is right in front of us, because Did you vision, actually say that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a conversation yeah. that actually happened. Yeah, and so, but he's very, you know, clear, you know, like, that's a big question. You know, to him is is like, why can't I get people just to extend from me? If I can do it, then other people, and then sometimes there's people who are smarter every once in a while, but usually he's kind of the smartest guy in the room, able, especially about his subject. Uh, you know, what's too uh, far out, what's realistic? That line is a very, nothing in Avatar is real. So what's realistic is, is, a, is a moving uh, aesthetic that's found. For me, because I don't do all the illustrations so well, and I and I don't do all sorts of levels, but philosophically, and I understand Ewa, I actually understand what that's about, that he's trying to invoke, and the two sides of it, so that I understand that Jim is like Neytari on the inside, and he also can be like Quaritch on the outside. I mean, he's got a, a real split between those two things, and that's why you see the sensitivity and you see the brutality, and they clash in something as powerful as that. The point being that when you say something like, or the Zen Cohen answer to why is there so much for us to do? Because the vision is so big. You can't be by yourself and achieve this vision. And that's, he's finally, I think over the last year, has come to understand that, that through, from Titanic on, it's, it's all bigger than him because he's more of a medium for what's going on and so he can become a bottleneck if he actually applies the wrong sensibility to like I got to do all of this he's got to rely on other people and believe and have trust and look that's the core of Ewa is to actually be able to move in the world that way and to believe the interconnectedness of things so my my point of view with him was to always try to serve the best I could the vision that he'd found at the bottom of the ocean when he was diving for the Titanic and he saw real life forms, bioluminescence, and was amazed by what the possibilities were of life and how to bring that back and then try to show the brutality of what we as humans do and that in conflict with that and to try to find some kind of an epic redeeming story of our time, which he's gonna continue with. He's got four more of these things coming and they are worthy, I can tell you that without being specific, of the, the, the mythology of our times where we are but he needs a world to create that and a lot of people and that's what he's doing and my thing with him is to say things like sometimes you're like fire and you'll just burn through stuff and I'm like water so when I'm steam I'm gone so let's stay on this side of me being gone for as long as we can because I can't that intensity is is incredible but look what comes out of it. So there's a form and a content. What's, does the 
and justify the means. I mean, we and we ended up getting along great because he understood that I was there for him, for his vision, not to get in his way, but to actually amplify. And in fact, when he would say to me things like, "I want all the things that I want to do uh, to go through you," and I would say, "No, no, it can't be that way. I don't want to be the bottleneck for all that. I want all the people to hear, and I'll try to orchestrate it." But everybody who's playing, let's say, go back to the metaphor of the music. Everybody who's playing their instruments. They need to hear it, and if I can help orchestrate it, or prioritize it, or soothe it, or bring it up, or strategize it, or bring it to the right place, it's all part of the collective vision that allows the movie to get made. What have been uh, your most effective uh, forms of communication, specifically with someone like James Cameron? I would say with James, it was uh, it was the verbal communication with some visual uh, um, wit thrown in meaning mean and of course the visuals in that he walked down to New Zealand and said these are the best sets I've ever seen so I'm very gratified that that was a wonderful team effort by myself and all the people who were in New Zealand to create those sets and also to create the motion capture dynamic that allowed for all of the um, the visuals of the planet to be uh, realized. But that's also in conjunction with a co-designer, Rob Stromberg, who I worked closely with and brought in so that he would be a production designer with me. That means I'm not taking on all of it all the time. I'm taking on all of it, but when I need to it, somebody else can come in and spell me. So I'm not, I'm not that territorial or egotistical to think that I can do everything. So if I'm saying to Jim, you can't do everything. I'm taking that message myself, which is to say, I can't do everything. The people I work with are extremely important to how the thing gets realized, these big, these big projects. We were uh, talking about Ewa, which is the theme and avatar around interconnectedness. Um, and the spiritual. And the spiritual essence. element, essence. Yeah. Um, where have you found that in your own life? Um... Well, it, the funny thing about it is if you think about it, uh, well, just on the cinematic side, and I can go back to the personal, but they both, they're both they both intertwined, but there's really only two movies in all of cinematic history that I know of that have any, that have any, have any renown where there's a stated uh, spiritual, uh, I don't want to call it religion, but close, it's, it's spiritual with a capital S. And that's Star Wars with the Force, and it's Ewa. I mean, you have a lot of cheesier ones, and, and I'm sure there, there's ones that are embedded. I mean, you could say that there's a, a spirit within Lincoln, but it's not. there's not a specific, maybe an Americanism, but it's not as specific as that. So to look and see what the commonality between those two spiritual points of view are, and to see are they one or are they two, I'm open to them being 20. It doesn't matter as long as I can conceive of the flow of what it means to be involved in a movie, in either case, that's trying to fundamentally express that. All the visualization that we see is a, is a fundamental need to express that point of view once it's stated. So if it's the force, or it's the force awakens. So it's about the force. It's about watching the force at work in Star Wars 7, and you will continue to see it go through 8 and 9. In the, in the next ones that come. For Ewa, it's about discovering 
that there is something in nature that is interconnected that's not necessarily easy for us to see. But if I show it to you at night when the lights go off and the bioluminescence, and it looks like nervous system and connections, that's what Jim saw at the bottom of the ocean. He went, that ha that's happening. It may happen down here where you can see it, but it's happening everywhere. Okay, so that's a connectedness. That's Gaia and that's all the, the, the connectedness on that level. Then in his movie, what he does is he has a, 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 a character like Sigourney Weaver's character who's a scientist. And she actually discovers the same thing with you know, all those little charts that they're showing how the, 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 vein, the, the nervous system works with plants or the, the avatars themselves. They look very much what it looks like when you look at the bioluminescence version in the movie. It's just the scientific path to get there. So they're both trying to get to the same place. It's just her scientific path doesn't fully make it. Whereas Jake Sully literally goes from being a crippled human who's part of a half of a whole. I mean, he's a twin brother. He's taking his twin's place. So he's already very diminished as an entity and he can't walk. He doesn't know what his brother knows. It's like he doesn't know his brother's brain about how to actually be an avatar. He gets thrust into this new world. He's nine feet tall. Now he can run. And he finds out all this stuff that actually turns him against the human race. And then he himself transfers into that other state of being at the end of the movie because he can see. What can he see? It's not I just I see a visual. It's, it was something that was in the script earlier that Jim wrote, which is when you see nothing, you see everything. It now nothing. But in that starts to become everything. And that whole new transformation that uh, Jake Sully takes in order to become the avatar state at the end of the movie is the transition that Jim is not already not only trying to achieve. He wants the audience to feel what that transitional transcendence through this force is all about. Same thing is happening with Ray, who's discovering the force. You know, she's out on a planet. She's a scavenger. She doesn't know anything about anything. And then suddenly these things start happening. And she's able to wield a lightsaber and she eventually goes to uh, an island at the end and meets Luke Skywalker and she hands him the lightsaber. Well, where is she at that point? Well, that is a fifth century Christian uh, island monastery off the coast of Ireland that I found as a place that you could end that movie and say, where are we now? Well, wherever it is, it's deep. It's the first Jedi temple. That's where he went. He went back to square one to get into a place that he would understand where he's been his life but she's coming to him and that's not different than everything that's going on with um, Nate Terry and Jake in their journeys it's played out differently but I see the connectedness and if I say where's the connectedness from that in my own life it's going to go back to that Tibetan temple of the red and the gold my father had passed away my grieving my looking at a symbol on a wall which is called jewel in a fire that is glowing Norbu Maybar understanding the passions that as they see that that's articulated and visualized the passions that we feel about anything but in this case a jewel a memory a feeling awa this force whatever everything that's around that that fire that's in that symbol on a, on a wall in a kitchen in a monastery in the himalayas in the middle of nepal and boom you know i'm just like bro go back out now you're in the big picture go right back into that jewel and all that fire is the passion that you bring and all the visualizations that go with the passion. And that's what the directors are doing. That's what I tap into and that's what trips me out. So it's all the same as being in the real world, my own real feelings about my life 
in, in both with my father, without him, you know, AI with my mother, without her, you know, uh, if I go to Avatar, it's, it's about what's the split with the other side of me that was just my twin, but now it's a whole other dimension that I'm going into. And now I'm not even a human anymore. And I've turned on my whole race, my whole species, not but just my race. Where am I now? You're not any place where you started. So you've taken a trip. It's a travel that actually in every one of these things has blown my mind, even if it's been somebody who's seemingly as powerfully centered and motivated and intentional as Abraham Lincoln. But boy, you go to the center of that and there's some turmoil because it's not easy. What do you do? What do you do by prolonging the war gonna kill another 100,000 or 200,000 people being so sure that you're right, that, that that's the right thing rather than just give in, end the war, but don't abolish slavery. Now we 150 years later can say, well, of course that was the right thing to do. But he didn't know that, he couldn't know that. All he had to do was be there in that moment. And what, and what did he evoke? It's amazing that Tony Kushner wrote these words for him that Daniel uh, Day-Lewis said. What makes slavery wrong? It's, well, it's, it's like Euclidean in, in his book on, on his theorem of that when you look at a triangle, two things that are equal to the same thing, two sides of a triangle are equal to each other. You go, well, duh, right? How much, well, what? no, but this had to be understood step by step. So if you say, what are the two things equal to? If they're two human beings and they're equal to what? It's God, it can only be God. So if two human beings are equal to God, they have to be equal to each other. That's what forms the triangle. And that's a lot like Ewa, and that's a lot like the force, it's the connectivity. <laughs> I think another Pull 10 people road. just Pull drove up. into the ocean. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> this is what is so impressive to me about you is that you are managing teams, you're managing budgets, you are on a schedule in Hollywood, which is a very ego-driven place. Right. How do you manage these two worlds of, of making sure that the trains are going to run on time, dealing with everyone's fears and anxieties, and being able to simultaneously live in this world that you just so deftly articulated, which is pure creation and getting down to the essence. Well, remember that getting down to the essence, what did it do in everything I said, whether it's the force or Awa or Lincoln, or even back to the future, it connects. If it can't at that level go down deep and connect, then you have a really big problem coming back up and connecting because that's when you're, that's when like if you're just stoned on a chemical and you're just in your thing and you, you perceive all of these connections, but you may not be that connected actually with something else outside because chances are the chemical is, is taking your judgments and pushing it aside, allowing you to access to that deeper place. And you may think that you're um, having great understanding with someone else, but if you're both chemically induced, then, then one of the interesting things is we used to do this in Berkeley in the 60s is is we would we would get stoned and we would laugh about something hysterically look at each other in the eyes like oh my god do we get it or this is fantastic and then at one point i started wondering and i just went back and said so what were you laughing at and everybody in five people were laughing at something different and then i went uh oh 
<laughs> or the experience like when you get stony or getting high and you go way out and you're on a tree and it all makes such sense and you get to one little branch and start and suddenly the whole thing breaks and you fall and you go you either have to laugh hysterically move on or go oh god not again so what i tried to learn how to do was even in those times was double track so i would calculate with some part of my brain while i was still you know under the influence of something and i never took lsd i don't think i could have done it under that but what i'm getting as i would understand watching where the thought went but understand what had why we made those free association those metaphoric shifts so when it fell apart and it always did i could take a step back and say yeah but the reason we're falling apart here maybe is that we got it's too far here that riff but if we go this other part it's still pretty solid we maybe have a lot that we can still use here it may not be the best but it it, it may be worthy let's not and, and then eventually for me having a chemical do it became an impediment so i actually like i mean this was you know one time i got stoned on marijuana back in the day and i thought i had a great idea and i wrote it down and it really you know because my actual experience is to fall in love with ideas, the idea of ideas, not the content of them, just the very idea of what an idea is. It's just like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Okay, so then I had this one of these and I wrote it down, I thought it was actually profound because I'm always ultimately looking for some bigger transcendent point of view that will make me feel a part of everything. Um, and, it was, and it was literally that God spelled backwards was dog. And I looked at that the next morning and it took, the wind out of me because I went oh my god I mean yes it's true but it's not something that matters to anybody in fact that's in the the Woody Allen movie Annie Hall that I saw 20 years ago so I'm even ripping off things I've seen to find the profundity that I'm now supposed to feel good about to project it into the future and I can't although here I am by the way projecting it into the future 30 years later because it's a it's a, it was a warning sign that maybe that's not the path to go keep thinking that's where I'm going to get my answers so you know if you if you at age, age I was 29 20 30 you know I was stopped getting the stone and then or slowly and then after a very short time going okay I'm not going to do this more professionally because I'm just I did things that were like that that made it into movies when God uh, is invoked in in Jurassic Park where uh, I think it's uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character Malcolm who says uh, God created dinosaurs, God destroyed dinosaurs. God created man, man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs destroys man. And then she says, uh, Ellie says, yeah. uh, women inherit the earth. Yeah. And she added that, dinosaurs which I thought was very man. funny. You yeah. know? The point I'm making is that was a stoned riff. It was a stoned riff in, that I had, that I brought into a movie, <clears throat> in, the, in the movie Contact, that I was the fourth dimensional consultant on. Because Bob wanted to know where does the message come from when it's it's Hitler's broadcast that goes out. When it comes back, embedded in it is a machine, the plans for a machine. But where is it? Is it in the, the, all the grain of the old film? And I said, no, it's, it's got to be the fourth dimension. It's got to be right in front of you, but you can't see it. So it meant that it was in the black between the frames. So no one knows that. Two, three people know that in the whole world point I'm making it's esoteric but it found its way in enough for Bob to go okay I get it let's move on because it was it was bothering him as to what was it the point I'm making is these things can be very esoteric or they can be as fundamental as on the force awakens where I was in a conversation with Dennis Murin and some other people saying in the early stages before the script was 
being written, what would truly frighten you about the dark side if it were to return? This is three years ago. And it was Dennis who said, well, if the, if the dark side had a way of taking light out of the sky, a star, that would be a pretty good you know, metaphor for it. Well, that's what you see in the movie. It's not an idea that somebody else had. It's the idea that Dennis had as a result of the conversation that I set the stage for as a production designer. I'm not taking credit that's my idea. I'm saying, but I went, okay, let's illustrate that. Let's show what that looks like and see if that isn't a major part of this next movie. And it was. So let's say you have an idea, um, maybe in the middle of the night, you wake up, oh, idea that could be great for the next Star Wars. How do you write that down? What form does it actually take? Is it a notebook? Usually a note or a notepad. I'll, I'll write something. Sometimes I have to be very careful that that the ink's working so you don't have one of those experiences which I've had where you wrote it down it's right there but now you've just got the imprint you're trying to do forensics on it right. you know uh, like a detective or that I haven't written it so so roughly that I can barely read what I wrote um, but this side of that um, it's mostly notes and then and I and I also you know surfing through Google these days is a really good way to get my brain going on a certain level uh, it's how I found the island at, uh, at the end of Star Wars. I just I, I looked up I think like exotic dirt, deserted island because I wanted it to be a water planet with an island, and then that was in like in the first five. I went oh look at that. And I went closer. There's a monastery there, and I went oh my god, I got to go there. The point I'm making is it's a process of being I think open to what does come to you. Note that that when something comes, especially as you get older, but is to write it down and stuff because so it will just it could just be gone and not return chances are it returns at some point if it's really important but if you can get it at the right time and often it's it's right under that pressure like just as you're moving into a meeting or just you're about to have it or that's why I'm very trying to be attuned in a conversation with somebody when it might be coming on and then to, and to say let it come on you know like a vision doesn't always reveal itself as an actual image you can feel it you can it's it's the it's the it's the equivalent of that smell that you're trying to invoke when you know it you can feel it but i can't put it into words yet i can't and it, and the words are not the thing so for instance words are really good but the color red is not r-e-d it's not r-e-d-d-i-s-h reddish it's not reddish brown it's not reddish yellow it's not you can see it but you can't necessarily articulate it but that's the actual function of making a movie is to bring it forth with everybody doing their best till it's right there in front of you all the way down to the to the um, expressions and people's faces and I've gotten to do that too because on BFG uh, I, I got invited with Stephen into the process of just how do you create that character so to me that's great because it's already now not just going to the backgrounds and the world of it's already going to the center of the movie which is what does the person's face look like? What does that convey? This is a big friendly giant. Yeah, sorry, big yeah. friendly giant. Um, Nobody seems to have seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, check it out on video. It's actually pretty great. I will check that out. <laughs> um, so it, it sounds like you ask yourself a series of questions that you've been tasked with. Say it's, um, okay, uh, the uh, protagonist in the latest Star Wars finds Luke Skywalker at the end on an island. Um, so you have these questions like, okay, I need to find an island where there will be a peak um, or, or you get a certain amount of direction from the director. Do you then come into the meeting with 
this one idea saying, oh, I found this island in Ireland, or do you have 10 ideas because you know nine will get shot down? How does that work? I, yeah, when you're younger, you do that 10 and nine, but when you get older, <laughs> that's really hard to do. I mean, if you like the island let, and they don't, then let them come up with another one. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious, right. but I'm just. I'm <laughs> that's just what happens when you get two Academy Awards. Well, no, no, I think what it is is it's, it's all open because you hope that whatever you're saying sparks a reaction rather than what's been termed room silence. That's not a good response, right? right? I mean, nothing is, is, now out of nothing comes everything. But um, the point I'm making is, and you have to sometimes let that blank be there, because remember the blank canvas, just to riff on that for a second, why it's not frightening really, is that if you're an artist, as myself, I've faced many white blank canvases. Now you can look at that and say, well, there's nothing here. Oh, sh oh my God, what am I gonna put here? This is terrible. I mean, and then again, why am I even doing this if this is going to be so painful, right? Or it could be the Michelangelo point of view, like with, with the, the, the marble in which he sees or feels it's in there and he's just got to take away everything that's not there. But if it's, a, if it's a, a, a canvas, what I've come to understand, is, especially if it's blank, it's white, chances are. That means it's all the colors are already there. So it's for me to discern what wants to come out of the white as opposed to that there's nothing there it's all about my will so then that also allows me almost always if i'm in a situation and the idea is not happening then bring it down to nothing let it just be nothing for a moment and and comment on it as well we don't have anything there and that could be about an idea for a scene a visual a location what are we going to shoot in 10 minutes all those at every time because most of the people that you're around tend to be in movies great problem solvers but they do need to be given some form of a direction as to what we want to accomplish but the production designers often in when there isn't something clear as to what exactly we're trying to accomplish so that's my job is to try to as you say orient that thing now it wasn't necessarily that Luke Skywalker was going to be found on an island it was that he was going to be found at the end of the movie somewhere and that if that somewhere could invoke the first Jedi temple, that would be really great. Now, that's the, that's the brief. That's the direction that you yeah. get. So when I'm thinking we've been to a desert planet, we've been to a green planet, and we've been to an ice planet, and we can start making concoctions, but we still have a water planet to go, just on the fundamental elemental expressions of these planets in The Force Awakens. So what would it be on a, on a water planet? Is it underwater we're going to find him? That's a little weird, like Jar Jar Binks going underneath that place. That's not to say you can't go underwater in Star Wars. It just means I'm not sure this is where we want to go, given, you know, all the sub, we're going into the subconscious and blah, blah, blah. I'd rather be on an island. Well, it turns out the island of Skellig Island is actually a lot like a peak in the Himalayas. It's a lot like just above the water, like the cloud level. It there and it's a monastery and oh my goodness have I been to a monastery before and is this monastery as profound as the one that I was in in Nepal turns out yes and look at all those steps that you have to go up that's the thousands of steps that people did over a couple thousand years you know to make those things oh it turns out that if you read about that place it is a place of both great enlightenment and great suffering to be out there all the time imagine 100 years ago you can barely go there now except for in the summer months so i go out there and i meet this woman who 
is going to take me up to the top. She's about 50, really athletic and everything. And she takes me up. And I'm walking, and there's no railings. We're all just kind of walking up. I'm going, am I going to bring a crew up here? You know, and, and it's an environmental site that's protected, so you can't do lots of things. You can maybe bring 50 people to the island, but you can't build anything. So how am I going to make that work? So I go, but I'm going to let this just talk to me. Where can we get up people up to? What can we shoot? And where can we find Luke Skywalker? Who is Luke Skywalker? We haven't seen him for the whole movie. We haven't seen him in 35 years. What's the best way to present that guy that we knew back then? Well, anyway, the woman that I was with, it was fantastic because she was so into it, telling me about all the, the monks that had been there. And it just sounded like I was hearing about Jedi um, history. When it turned, when it came time to come down, I looked down, I went, Oh man, I gotta walk down those steps now. And they're not even steps. That means I'm gonna have to really concentrate the whole way. Because otherwise, if I trip, I'm falling, I'm gonna hurt myself. And I thought, I don't wanna have to concentrate like that after having such a nice high, right? Um, I've just met Luke Skywalker in my mind. I just handed him a lightsaber. Now I gotta go down. So I did the thing which I would say is if you get older, just learn to do it. Maybe learn to do it when you're younger. Because it's the same as the issue of collaborating that I was talking about, which is if you need help, reach out, try to get it from somebody else and do it in the right way. Don't in an egotistical way, reach out, don't demand it, ask for it. And again, that's the connectivity, right? That's how it works. Things have needs and they, and they need something else to help. Every entity, every person, every consciousness. So I turned to her and I said, if you walk down three steps ahead of me, I can follow your steps down in my mind so the whole way down it was easy just following her steps and she was singing Joni Mitchell songs and and and, and taking me back to my early days of travel in the 70s and hearing these sort of lamenting songs with the air the lifting past on the island as we went down it all just happened in a dream so the whole going up was a process the discovery and then coming down and I felt like well that's going to be it. If, if that's not it, I have no idea where we're supposed to be. So then how to present that was just was really quite simple. But it wasn't like there were lots of options. In fact, JJ never went there ahead of time. He just went, that's it. Okay, let's go. Stephen has often said to me, you know, I'll say, do you want to see what we're going to shoot tomorrow? And he go, no, surprise me. Now, not every director is like that, but some have to get to a point where they are trusting. And it's a process that happens over many years you can't just get that right away but when you can find the level to be in sync with somebody treasure it nurture it and see if you can keep your egos out of the way because over time that's what develops the language that then does emanate the movies or whatever the creative process is uh, whenever you talk about steven spielberg um, i can tell you, you have a lot of respect for him what is it that you respect so much I particularly respect the way he looks at me and an openness, a humanity for how he engages his life, the, the process, his work as an artist. And I guess it's, it's been a, just a mutual understanding of connection that's grown over the years. And even to the point where, for me personally, the email back and forth that we it keeps it it's pretty separate from any business thing but it's just things we observe and interest us i i think that you know he's old he's like my older brother 
And so I'm following, you know, I, and I learn from his consciousness. I, I, I can see when he pulls back and how he protects that in order not to get caught up in all the wrong things whenever he can. Uh, and I've learned a lot from that. Um, Zemeckis, Bob Zemeckis has been like my younger brother, but still far more precocious and talented on that level of cinema than I ever was. So I just got to bounce back and forth for 25 years just between the two of them. So I got to a point where I didn't feel judged. And that's the hardest thing that everybody has when you jump from project to project each time you're trying to prove yourself and you're you're a little bit in a zone of of ego just by either defense or offense just to get through that. I had 25 years where I had so little of that that I think that's how I built up my own ability to even do the movies that I've been able to do outside, let's say with Jim Cameron or Zack Snyder on <clears throat> Sucker Punch or then with J.J. Abrams. And J.J. Abrams had, it was, had a wonderful response to me. And, and by the way, all this, almost all of it was orchestrated by Kathy Kennedy, who is a producer, and then Steve Starkey, and then John Landau, and Deborah Snyder. They always appreciated who I was, what I could bring to the table, and encouraged that. So it allowed me to do these ranges of things. But to, to meet a young person who's 17 years younger than myself, like J.J. Abrams, and to find what's that common point of reference going to be. It turns out, actually, that we had one very literal one, which is both having been West L.A. bred. We had the same English teacher 17 years apart at Palisades High School. And that that person, when we were looking for a model for a Force-sensitive character in The Force Awakens, became Maz, who's the CG character that helps Ray along the way and hands the lightsaber and everything. That was our high school teacher that we both knew and she was an existential teacher. So she asked very fundamental, real, authentic questions, uh, just the way my grandmother did and, and kind of found a way of orienting whatever we were doing to that. And as you watch the force through her, you could see it awaken, both for good and for bad. So basically, JJ and I had this great encounter when we first met where we just started talking like this for about you know what do things mean to us for about 10 minutes and then um, afterwards I had heard that he turned to Kathy Kenny and said uh, do I get Rick Carter meaning do I get him as a production designer in this movie because I'd already been on the movie trying to help visualize where Star Wars could go and she had a great line that served as sort of the template for, I think, what I like about where I am now and I'm trying to preserve and you know, project this into the future, which is that she said, you get Rick Carter, but you don't have him. Meaning he's not territory that you're gonna always have when you're doing every little thing that you need done on a set. So that's why I have a co-designer who also was very smart or very capable and younger and liked every single detail who could come in and I could work with. That's why I've always done work together in a collaborative way. Most production designers will not do that. But I've got lots of co-design credits because I bring people in to work, not just because I want to, and that I'm so benevolent, because I need to. But that's how I try to progress forward. So that's that all relates back, to, though, to Steven Spielberg, because I learned from him that he was delegating to me I needed to de delegate in order to achieve at a higher level. <laughs> what impact has John Lennon had on your life? Well, he's the source. I mean, if there's the if there's the force, and if there's Ewa, uh, even if there's 
the jewel in the fire at the Tibetan uh, um, monastery in the Himalayas, of course those all uh, create a, a dynamic that you can use all sorts of words um, for that spiritual experience. The the impact of John Lennon on me is so profound that that um, his ability to both be who he was and to make me feel, not make me feel, allow me to feel that I was also him, broke down certain um, identity barriers that to this day, uh, I'm, I'm a, I am what's called to myself, I, it's not an official club, a DOJ, a disciple of John. So everything that I'm doing is a projection on this level of having heard his voice, the lyrics, the, I, and applying them throughout my life. So I could give you two specifics that are John Lennon-isms that I've already identified. Um, one is, how is it to, to, to work with someone like Jim Cameron who could be so demanding in ways that might put people very much on the defensive uh, and then maybe not make them able to perform as they would normally if they didn't feel that, that pressure. And when I was sort of wondering this to myself, I was looking for a key. And one of the things that can happen is, is you, if you have something that's going on for yourself, you can be insulted by someone else telling you that's not the way it is. And then you've got to adapt. Now you can be insulted. So John Lennon in an old song, before he started doing his messages uh, consciously, has a song called uh, I'm a Loser. It's pretty explicit. And in it... What does it mean? Yeah. What is, <laughs> no, well, what does it mean? And what's he saying? Now, what he's describing is as though he's lost a love. But what he says in it at one point is, and so it's true, pride comes before a fall. I'm telling you so you won't lose all. It's a pretty explicit message. I invoked that when I was looking at Jim and I went, I see, it's my pride that I'm dealing with here. And if I can not get involved in my own pride, I won't have to take a fall because I'll, I won't set up a false paradigm with, with, with him. And so that was literally John Lennon going, take a step back, if don't fall, if you don't, I mean, if you wanna fall or jump, jump, but know that you're gonna fall if your pride's coming first like this. Okay, so that was one just very, very, I mean, how much more strategic and helpful can you get than that but the probably bigger one that has pervaded my entire life is it because of probably when it hit in 1967 in my own identity crisis when he came up with that line i am he as you are he as you are me and we are all together that's in i am the walrus in december of 1967 i thought what does that mean and I realized that hearing all the rest of the surreal lyrics, well, maybe it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a great turn of phrase that gets you into the kaleidoscopic surreal world of where nothing is real and it's all the identities are shifting. The doors of perception is that, you know, does that plant over there, does that chair over there have the same consciousness as me? And if we do, we don't, the ecological, whatever you want to say at that point. And there's lots of schools of thought at that point. The point I'm making is when you're in the beginning of a song and you're hearing that, it overhearing it over and over again, it was like a mantra that broke down something. And what it broke down was the idea that 
I as me uh, is separate. Okay, that's just the first part. So you can see how that relates to Ewa and a force, really literally, okay? So, but even more importantly, it was like it was, and I only learned this about 40 years later, was it was like an equation. And I, had, I was in a high school reunion. I was talking with someone from my high school reunion. I said, it just dawned on me when talking to him that I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together, is like a formula or almost an equation. And I said, think about it. You're looking at somebody right over here to your left. Imagine both of you or to your right. There's another entity and we'll call it he. It could be she and you can do whatever you want with that level or it could be transgender. It, I don't, it doesn't matter. But I am he and you are he. Okay. If I am he and if you are he, that makes you me. And then we in a triangle are together. Right? So it's, it's like saying something that's very solid that when you get to a, a, a three level, you can create the one. That became an, an axiom that I've actually looked for now. When the three reveals itself, or if I'm two heading towards the third unknown, I'm getting close to describing a, an entity that's complete. Now, as you'll remember what I was saying earlier, that's exactly what Tony Kushner had Lincoln say about why is slavery wrong? Because two entities or people in that case, that are equal to the same thing, God, are equal to each other. Now, after the movie came out, and there was an awards season thing, and I was with Daniel Day-Lewis's wife, we were talking, and I brought that up, just like that. And she went, that's what that means? You know, like, is that really what that means? And I said, well, let's look over here. We've got Daniel Day-Lewis and Tony Kushner right across the room talking to each other. Let's go ask them. It's like Marshall McLuhan stepping into the the... Woody Allen movie in Annie Hall saying what's the truth. We walked over and I said, so here's my take on what you said and you wrote for Lincoln as what that meant. And they both agreed with what I'd said was correct. So that means to me, that was John Lennon because I picked up on it and I got the message from John and then somehow having nothing to do with my will or my specifics, I'm involved with a movie that is invoking that philosophy and that influence of John, who got to the top of being an entity and exploded into a non-entity in order to become everything. That's all his, all his songs in the 70s are just about what that experience is. So the capper of the whole darn thing was, I was sitting in the Academy Award seats waiting for the awards to be given and it was the Production Design Award and I was just so sure that the, the production design award would go to one of these bigger movies that I was sitting with my wife and I, I was sort of in my own mind called minding the gap just like the Oscar goes to gap just be there and let that be whatever it is don't don't need to go to the other side of it. it's already great it's fun it's just be there so I'm in that mind of gap and they, they say Lincoln and I'm there and I'm just thinking about Lincoln my God, this is about Abraham Lincoln we're talking about. I would have wanted to be a part of Abraham Lincoln's legacy for my whole life. I just think it, it's just like what he stood for, who he was. And suddenly, everybody's applauding. So that means that they called out who won. And I look over, and I'm just waiting to see who's going to stand up. And I look over at my wife, and she's got this weird expression on her face like, oh, my God, it's you. And that's all that happened. It was like... And it's like going into a car crash, but at the other end of that car crash numbness 
you know, denial is something good. So I get up and I walk up and all I'm thinking is, well, there's Stephen and there's Daniel and Tony and Kathy and, oh, there's some stairs. Jennifer Lawrence fell on stairs. Don't trip on stairs, 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 stairs. You know, get up there, turn around and looking out. And all I could think of was, oh my God, this is happening. And I looked over at where Stephen and, and Daniel and everybody was and I could address them and just to try to make it real. And then luckily my eyes went back to my wife and I could tell her that I loved her. And then the next thing I knew, it's backstage with this whole weird thing. And all I'm saying is, then I was standing next to Daniel Day-Lewis and we were the two people standing there with Oscars for having worked on Lincoln and been a part of that. That's a great honor, great experience, but it goes down to that, what's that I am he thing? And how does that relate to John Lennon? And top of the world, and what does top of the world even mean? And frankly, it's wonderful, but it only means what you bring to it. It, it whatever that thing is, let's say that this gold glittering thing, it's only as good as the warmth you can give to it. And that's what I felt then. I feel it now, and that's been the whole road to 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 get that level. And and then you know you can't hold on to it. It's a verb, but. It's anyway. That's where my brain goes. Did you ever have a chance to meet John Lennon? Well, that's an interesting. What in, known as in in human form? Me okay meeting okay. You tell me if I've met him, okay? Because all right. First, I went to the Hollywood Bowl, and I was four rows from where he stood on stage while he was singing the first uh, tour in the United States in Los Angeles. And so, no, I didn't technically meet him at that point. However, a woman, a young girl, about four steps over, um, during the in-between of the songs, everybody's screaming the whole time. But she was screaming like orgasmically at a level that was truly <laughs> high. I still have hearing problems. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little like those things that are still in your... <laughs> And well, I didn't even know what that was. I was only 14 myself. He looked over at her and pointed his finger at her and she dropped. And they had to have people come to revive her. Now, he didn't hit me, but it was close enough that I feel like that I met I met that. Okay. Now, what, you felt the lightsaber go over your head. I did. And and one more was I was running on Sam and Senny, same time. Only this is this is uh, I think Actually, I think this was before this, before I actually had that other. Um, and I used to run long distance as a kid. And then I was coming up and I came upon this, this uh, place on Salmon City in Los Angeles called Cliffwood Drive. There was a crowd of about 150 kids. And I'm going, what's going on? The Beatles are coming. They're coming to a party here at this, this Brentwood house. So I stood around, you know, like for about an hour and a half and finally decided whether this is going to happen. So I kept running. I ran about a half a mile down further, and then I saw this black limousine coming the other way, and I looked into the window, and there was John Lennon. And yes, he did look in my mind's eye out at me. Now, I could go and slow that moment down, and when you say the ask, did I meet him? Okay, my version of that is I looked at him, reflected on the window was me, so I and he were the same, and from that point on, that's all it's ever been. Now, did any of that actually happen exactly that way? I think so. However, my cousin, 
wrote a story recently that had that in it as though it was his experience. So now I'm quoting, did that happen? I know the other one happened. So when you ask, did I meet John Lennon? I'll just say close encounter is as good as I can do, but it, but it, it resonated. Well, I think that <laughs> that answer makes me think a lot because there are people in my life who I have never met um, personally, but they've had profound effects on me just through hearing them in my head from podcasts. And I may never meet them. And some of them I actually don't even have the real desire um, to meet because any questions that I ever could have wanted to ask them have already been asked them and they've mm. definitely answered those questions. Um, so the idea of meeting a person is, uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I, th yeah, I, think, I think that you is. tapped into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because he's obviously had a profound effect on your life, which has then imprinted um, future creative decisions that you've right. made, um, which have been seen by millions of people and potentially imprinted on someone else who you will never meet. Right, right. And it, and so it goes. The, and and so and you're talking there and getting at the, the that realm where the reality of somebody who John Lennon really was as a person, how he treated. X, Y, and Z, who, what he did compared to what his art was, and then is there a conflict or is there not a conflict? And what, you know, do you choose to believe that old line, you know, about the, the you know, the man or the myth? And I just know in my life and times, I came to where those rubbed up closely enough that it didn't sort of even matter anymore. Um, and partly that's because, um, of course, it matters as. If it matters, then it matters. But if it doesn't seem to matter, you don't have to make it matter. So I think what you're talking about is you may have gotten everything you can from those people, but to actually see them in real life, you may never be able to have that encounter that would be meaningful as much you already feel like you got. So do you pursue it or do you need, not need to pursue it? Um, it's a tricky it's a tricky one, but I think it's one to surf. I actually think surfing is the way to metaphor that one, because if the wave comes where you're not going to be in close proximity to the real person, and then you can get something out of that, then that's really great. But a lot of times there is a letdown, or there's the other way around. You meet somebody and you think they're fantastic, but they can't quite do everything that they talk about doing. So we're all in this together as the frailty between who we are what we can create, what we can't, and also our life and times. Just because you're a certain way doesn't mean it won't pass you by. And that's what I'm trying to do is be as graceful as I can to hand it over anything I can to do that. In a sense, what Bob Dylan said a long time ago in the times we were changing is, if you can't lend a hand, get out of the way. So I'm trying to lend a hand and sort of still be around for some of what's going on, but be aware that, that there's a force of, of generations that's coming that's really theirs to, to, to shape and it's a it's an interesting lifelong dynamic that my grandmother lived to be 103 Express which was the the uh, Heraclitus um, dictum which is that the only constant is change and I used to think when I was younger well of course I understand that I mean you're surfing you know you're young and you're surfing all the change you're going I get it it's only when you don't want it to change that then that change part doesn't want to feel so constant because it feels like it's a motherfucker that's trying to, you know, change your life and is going to and you're already being put through it and you don't like it. Um, change that feels good 
is great. And so much of that is based upon how you look at what it is. So for instance, just in my life, there's been a little bit of a, it's been kind of a, what's the word? A, a word that I've used that, that got created. Um, if I could just express this, you'll see how far it goes called Skoropi. You've probably even heard it because you're part of the the license plate yeah Skoropi. my kids yes. both have Skoropi license plates and it's spelled differently one's with a c s-c-o-r-o-p-i one's with a k s-k-o-r-o-p-i so imagine that one's italian and one's greek yeah that okay. is a great story tell the story well the story just to to say it is back in 1968 in berkeley it was before you could actually believe it or not call up and get pizza delivered there was one place, I think it was called Ch Chicken Delight or something, and you could sometimes get a pizza. But anyway, we went out and we uh, smoked some marijuana, we're stoned, and we went to the frozen food section and we got some a frozen pizza and we brought it back, we put it in the oven, and 20 minutes later we pulled it out and we had forgotten to take the cardboard off the bottom of it. That means that it's all done on the top, but it's doughy underneath. It's not really something you can fix. You can sort of fry it in pieces, but that's just lame. You know, I mean, you've really kind of messed up your pizza. So we were all kind of bummed that we'd messed up this pizza. We kind of looked at the top. It looked pretty good, but the doughy side looked iffy. So my friend picked up the, the box, and he, and he was looking at it, and he had the, the, the back side to us. He said, oh, look, man, we, we messed up. And we said, well, no, we definitely messed up. He goes, no, 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 no. We bought the wrong thing. This is not pizza, it's scaropi. And it says here that scaropi is a delicacy down by Naples that actually has a doughy, not so harsh under uh, uh, crust. So that that's, we've actually got really good scaropi. Let's just, just look at this. And they sort of showed how it bent through the fingers and everything. So we all kind of picked up a piece and started eating what we knew was terrible tasting pizza but it was okay scaropi and we actually made it through it and went that was pretty good scaropi now years later i uh started invoking that in my work whenever we'd run up against an assumption that i didn't think could work as far as how we were thinking about a scene or a set or anything or a schedule and i would say well let's just pull back and let's see if we can scropey the situation let's both the the scropey would be the noun but it also can be a verb to apply this idea the idea is if john lennon says god is a concept by which you measure we we measure our pain then scropey is a concept by which we measure our gain so it's very inherent thing is can you change the definition of something so that you're no longer defeated by it but you can have success so I would apply that and we would often come up with ideas. So I was actually now making it strategic and functional and all this stuff. So about 10 years after that, or maybe 20 actually, I was talking to my friend Barry, who was the guy who actually looked at the box and said Skoropi. And I told him how I'd applied this over all these years. And he said, you know, I think that's great, but you know what, you weren't even there. <laughs> You weren't even there. That, this is a story that was told to you, and then you... And, and he had originally done it with... He had originally done it, and show you the connectivity, at camp, but had told me about it, and I had internalized it so much that now it had become real to me. I mean, there's a St. Scaropi Church in War of the Worlds that they walk by. All the, Everybody's walking by. St. Scaropi Church. Just 
Skoropi beer in a bar in Avatar, although it's part of what was cut out, but it's there in the deleted scenes. Point is, I went, well, that just makes it even better because now it's a, truly a concept that you can't, there's no nothing around it that matters. Now watch where it goes with this, however. Now, I'm not going to belabor this too far, but to say that about five years after that, I was talking with a woman who was an assistant to a producer who I kept talking with because I'd always talked to her while calling the producer. And she, I found that she sounded really, really down for a couple of times. And I asked her if, if I could, what was going on? And she told me a terrible story about her uh, fiance who had just been killed in a car crash. And she was just devastated, but she was sort of hanging on to sort of working as some normalcy. But basically she, she after that, stopped but I told her and I didn't want to be glib or weird but we got into conversations about life and at one point she was laughing about something and I invoked Skoropi knowing it's the most shallow of ways to talk about compared to what she was up against but but at the same time it still felt like the right thing in that conversation and she sort of thanked me for raising her spirits a bit you know thinking about something then Two years later, I got an email from her, and she, and, and she said, uh, um, I just want you to know that how important that was for me at that moment, because even though the love of my life was killed, I've now moved on, and I am engaged to be married to another man that I love, and I've thought about Skoropi forever, and, and just wanted to thank you. So I went, oh my gosh, that from that to that to that meaning from a stone pizza non-experience, non-pizza experience, to applying it at work, to helping somebody through how to change the idea of how they perceived something, to make it actually okay. And just to show you how it all really comes around, then her best friend is an executive at Lucasfilm who knew about Skoropi when I met her. And so whenever I interface with her, she always signs off Skoropi forever. Only she spells it S-C-A-R-O-P-I. Now there's somebody else who spells it S-C-A-R-O-P-I. It turns out that your mother's first husband, Walt, was at the place at camp where the pizza experience really happened and has known about Skoropi his whole life but never made a particularly big deal of it, spelled it differently. So then when I talked to him maybe five years ago about it, he goes, Oh yeah, well I was there. I, I, I know what Skoropi is. So Skoropi is a concept that can be out there. It's an open app. Anybody can use it because it's just an attitude. And it, it can be a noun or it can be a verb. It probably can be an adverb as far as I know. I'm just not sure how you do that, but to Skoropially engage. Uh, there's a quote that I love that says, one person can change the whole world mm-hmm. as long as they're not worried about who gets the credit. Right, right. And I think that you could apply that to one Skoropi could change the whole world <laughs> as long as it's not right, worried right. about who gets right, the credit. Right. Exactly. I would hope so. That would be great. Because uh, it is, it is, and again, as a Leninism, you know, you've got to free your mind instead, you know, and, and it's, and, and, or, or Bob Dylan, you know, it's not he or she or it that you belong to. These consciousness things that we're doing, we can describe lots of ways. And I'm not a, I'm not proselytizing anything. All I know is I've gotten to visualize with some really great talent all of these uh, uh, 
form of visualizations. And in fact, that does go back to some things that, you know, people do in, in many cultures, which is how do they visualize in order to understand the world that they're in that's not the one that's right in front of them. Because remember, cinema, in fact, Jim Cameron specifically uh, uh, talked about this, that, that the states of consciousness in, 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 uh, on Pandora, in Avatar, are there's the human world, then there's the Navi world, but then there's this bioluminescent world. And the bioluminescent world that is where you see it, he described as phantasmagoric. And phantasmagoric means, if you look it up, as seen in a dream state. So it all comes right back around to what are you invoking that is like the cinematic experience of being in a dream. So you take it on that way and you feel like you've lived it. And then to some degree you are maybe impacted by that when you walk away, for better or for worse. Are there any questions that you wanted to ask John Lennon? Or if you were sitting with him today, mm. what questions would you ask him? I think it would be, are you at peace? I mean, you know, with, with what your life was and then taken from you as it was early, but then seeing what happened after. And I and I think, I, I'm guessing that the response would be a very strong ambivalence, which would be, you know, you well, you can, meaning you can count me out in meaning that he is out because that's what happened. And there's, there's no getting around that version of that level of reality, that tyranny of reality. However, the in is that life does flow on in, in mysterious ways, sometimes in relationship to very specific and very painful losses because we have to make up in our consciousnesses that, that loss. Sometimes it leads to bitterness and and, uh, and vengeance and, and sometimes over time there's a there's a kind of an acceptance and then maybe you do something with it because you vowed that you'll always honor that sometimes you need to let that go so that you that whatever the track is and that's where what my grandmother said is is potent is like even the givens that you think you're working off of to keep yourself honorable or on track might need to shift and that's I think the thing that I've come into recently is to that faith involves actually doing things you don't know how it's going to be. And, and you may have to just trust that, that your own essence or being is going to be enough to do what is the right part of the equation as opposed to not knowing specifically all the, the ways that it might manifest itself specifically in reality, like you know money and strategics and all those things. So. Um, that would be what I would hope the conversation would go like. He, he might just go. I don't know what he would do. I mean, you know, he's 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 a lot of different characters in my brain. You know, that can they can be very hard ass and real and very ethereal at the same time. A couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. This is so fun. Um, <clears throat> what uh, advice would you give to your twenty-five-year-old self? I, that's a good one. Um, well, first of all, for those of you that, if there's anybody listening to this that is 25, is driving, is, is do stay on the side of the road that the laws dictate in terms of you're going to get in a head-on crash. I'm not saying don't go off on a dirt road, don't get, don't go off road. You can do all that, but but just know where that double line is. You know, 
um, so that you don't don't get so when you're in the midst of somebody that could be life-threatening know where the, the threats are that would be the, the the main thing I think I had begun to learn by 25 which is a certain amount of street smarts and what people's motivations are and not not be too negative cynical nor uh, naive in a sense one thing but naive and and uh, naive and cynical are not good places to actually perceive reality from you think you're protecting or you're open but you're you're either stupid or you're or you're just closed so I that would be a part of the message the other would be um, that the various things that you that I saw of whether I wanted to be a artist a writer a philosopher a director a traveler a a man of the world a, a great lover however I would have or some form of John Lennon whatever I those eight or ten things I would have been able to say I'm flipping from one to the other and I never seem to rest like a roulette it just it seems to change all the time at age 25 what I felt at the time was that I was fragmented but by the time I've gotten now but particularly maybe into my 40s I started to see or feel deeply that I was just getting glimpses of the same thing from different perspectives that have allowed it all to now feel more coherent but I was also lucky to have things like uh, amazing stories which was so eclectic make it look like I was coherent <clears throat> because otherwise I would have been that all over the place with every story I would have wanted to tell even if I knew I wanted to tell a story but suddenly it was a paycheck stories told all over the place and there was power in that but to relax with it and feel somewhat some patience or or just grace or that's I think the thing that most people who are older say to people who are younger is these things that you're driving at they're only going to be manifest 50% of the time at best by your will and so that's why I was my latest joke to myself is that I have premonitions but I'm 50% wrong so that's the same as flipping a coin <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I uh, wish I had it better than that, but then again. Um, what do you want to do moving forward? Where do you see the next 10 years of your life? Um, I need to not be away from my family, particularly my wife and my mother and my uh, son and daughter as much, and geographically not so strung out with time zones and, and things, uh, which I'm working to not be so global. Um, and... I think that that will help me to, to, to find another level, and I don't know what that level looks like yet. I, 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 it's a big mystery to me. It's all built upon this stuff that's happened, um, but it does feel like it, that wave is coming to an end. And so now, whatever this next tide brings, I mean, that's the metaphor. I don't really know, um, but that's that's. I'm wistful. I'm, at times I get kind of like, whoa, what's going on? And then I, I basically feel that I've had it so good. And, I, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll invoke that thing I just heard, which is from Dr. Seuss, which is I'm really glad that um, it's happened. Uh, and I don't want to be sad that it's over. I just, I can feel that it's coming to an end. But that doesn't mean that the ending is not is not one of those things that people talk about as a new beginning, and we'll see. I mean, it's 
probably just maybe a little more local geographically. Yeah. Anything else? Well, the thing that I always thought was um, uh, was um, that things that I excelled at was like when they asked, you know, like in this little blurb, like, what do you do well, was to, to turn on, to tune in and trip out. So the turning on was turning on and realizing there is something here to be done. That's a, it's a really good idea or feeling. The tuning in is who can you tune in with and at what levels to, to, to see who else is and what else is out there. And then the tripping out is then you, you go out and you put it out into the world and you, and you make it happen. And sometimes that's geographical or mental or whatever. Um, I think that the trip out part uh, is probably, um, the trip out part is probably what's in question now. So once I'm tuned in, now what that step is, it's probably about tripping out still, but somehow tripping out feels a little more like a young person's sport. And, and, and I, I like to convey that, but I think uh, there might be a more seasoned version of that, and I don't know what that, that looks like yet. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation. If you like this podcast, give it a rating on iTunes, share it with a friend or an enemy. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, go to kyle.surf. Until next time, my friends, in the words of the great Rick Carter, turn on, tune in, and trip out.